we're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Navigating Hawaii's Recovery 2.0. You know, we had a conversation with former Hawaiian Electric CEO Alan Oshima back in 2020. The governor had asked him to help us look past the pandemic and re-envision a different way of doing business. We invited him back to talk about the effort to re-examine our schools. State lawmakers gave the initial nod to a school facilities agency, but with no money. State Highways Deputy Director Ed Sniffen has been tapped to be in the driver's seat. We hear about the mission and the blueprint, but first, here's Alan Oshima. Governor asked me to help navigate. I've done that, you know, safe travels, a lot of the stuff that we've come up with. We're now going to start launching 2.0, right? The last phase of the economic recovery is resilience. And so we're trying to find federal money for that because we don't have money in the state, right? So we've applied for an EDA grant for uh, economic transformation post-pandemic. We'll probably have an answer next week. They're reviewing the application next week. I think we have a pretty good chance for that. My role as navigator is to find the way, but I'm not driving the ship. And with this SFA that I had been working on for 12 years, now becoming reality, the governor has appointed me to be on the SFA board. And frankly, a lot of my focus as we start to organize the SFA will be to the SFA, just kind of making that clear. And I'm just so pleased that the governor asked Ed to be the director because it requires all of his tools, knowing state budget, knowing land permitting, government, government agencies, federal funding, all of these things all come under how we have to start up the SFA. And we've got to go out and make rulemaking and do it right. That's how I am transitioning. I will still be around, but really a lot of the impetus on 2.0, once we get it started, will be uh, kind of self-moving with the legislature, the governor, and third parties, making sure that we get it done. Okay, Ed, now no pressure. <laughs> There's a lot riding on this agency. It's, it's going to be huge. This is a huge opportunity for the state to not only repurpose some of the lands to make sure that we have everything really operational, but make some significant improvements to our DOE system. The facilities themselves are going to be tremendous ads, but in addition to that, we'll be looking at facilities other than just schools to ensure that we can improve the DOE system, teacher affordable housing, community centers, and the like. All those things that support the schools are all parts of this SFA approach. So explain to our listeners, because we've got a situation across the state where some of the land is owned by the state and some of it is owned by the county. I think the thought was there would be synergy there to, to site the schools next to parks so that they could use the fields, et cetera, that kind of thing. So I know there's been a back and forth between here in Honolulu, the city and county, and the state, because the state wants to develop some of these properties where we have closed down schools, you know, uh, Liliuokalani, I think Wailupi, and it's like, what's possible? So actually, Koya is one of the only places where the state runs the schools. In most jurisdictions, it's the counties. So getting that back realigned again is, is going to be important. Act 72 allowed us, the state, to take the lands that are associated with schools from the county into state operations to ensure that we could enhance it that way. And we're still working with the city and counties to get the land transferred. It's not as simple as just having the lands transferred. We've got to get boundary surveys and agreements to get, to get the lands to us. But they're on the way at this time. When we do that, we'll get it all lined up again. Making sure that schools were near parks made total sense to ensure that the schools could take advantage of, of green open space for their, their program. And now when we start looking at the land transfer that comes through, we can see what makes the most sense. And that's what we're working with the city on, the city and the, the counties on. And they've been, they've been tremendous partners in doing this, understanding that the vision of improving things for all of our school, our, our children, is super important. By the way, I just want to make sure that there's no misunderstanding. It's not that SFA is going to take over the park. Presently, the dividing line is fine. There's city lands under the schools in some cases, and that's the part that has to be clarified, so that the parcel upon which the school resides is under one land tenure. So I know folks have had their eyes potentially on, like, I think, Kahomanu, you know, because mm -hmm. they're saying that's very valuable land there in Kaka'ako, and uh, would we be better served, you know, moving the school mm -hmm. somewhere else on either McKinley's mm -hmm. property and and then developing a high-rise there? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, th there's been a lots of talk over mm -hmm. the many uh, decades. But what about the concern that the public might have that, if, okay, if you develop a parcel, are you going to grab some of that parkland? 
I don't think there's a potential for grabbing parkland. I think the synergies between city-run parks, and they have the ability to do that, uh, versus putting it into school, I just don't think that's what's on the horizon. Ka'ahumanu, by the way, that's an excellent example of that parcel that that school sits on. Half of it is on city land. You know, there are no boundary markers, et cetera. But for this to make sense, if you have excess land available that used to be used for a school, land ownership under one landowner is really important to get developers or other users to be interested in it. So SFA has the ability to lease parcels, not to sell it, and it would work with community organizations or whomever for uh, other uses of lands that become uh, surplus. But only if the school is served by doing that. So the Kaumanu one, we had a summit, Catherine, last November, superintendents, uh, two school board members, the legislators who are involved, private schools, nonprofit organizations. And it was really to say, you know, Act 155, there, there hadn't been significant progress on coming up with a 21st century school a demonstration. And the end result of that was that Kaumanu being moved potentially move to the McKinley site and then making that other land available or rebuilding with a smaller footprint, Kaimuki High School and making excess land available for other uses were the two that were put out and said, look, why don't we let the community decide what they want? Unfortunately, I think it was not done with a lot of community engagement. And so there were some rumors going around. It was, it was too soon without a lot of vision. But yes, those were the ones that that group decided, let's try to see what we can do. And it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you if you've got parcels where you have multiple owners and, and just trying to clean those situations up. Absolutely. And, and the biggest part is going to be with the city. So we started the, our conversations with the city, uh, and we're starting to focus on the areas that, that were previously identified as projects that we could consider moving forward. We'll work on those properties first to clear the, the ownership to ensure that the state owns the land associated with the school. Then we can decide how best to utilize that land and move it forward. When we do that, we'll make sure we go through a public process so everyone in the community gets to weigh in on it to understand our thought process on how it enhances the mission of DOE, how it brings in more money or more, uh, more opportunities for our educational system. And we'll make it as transparent as possible so that everybody sees how we're trying to get this done. So if people are concerned about us potentially taking parklands or, or other properties that are not associated with the school, they'll be involved in the process. So I'm hoping that they won't worry, worry about that. And so uh, what else is on uh, your list, your to-do list, as we launch this agency? The first thing is to get the position funded. Um, the legislature absolutely supports the stand-up of this SFA. They gave us the positions last year, but they're not funded yet. It's my job to justify to them which positions we should be hiring right away. And from my perspective, we need rules to, um, to make sure that the SFA can operate. We need a person in place to start setting up our budgeting, our ASO. And we need a person in, in place to ensure that we can get out to the public with the messaging, so PIO for that portion. During this time, I'm going to be operating as a dual appointee, I guess. I'm going to be working in the highways position that I'm in, but I'm also the admin lead for this SFA. So I'll be the de facto ED while we're setting this all up. Outside of just the setup portion, we're gonna be making sure that we start getting the lands in or cleaning up the lands in these pilot areas that we want, we want to consider moving forward for redevelopment or restructuring. And we'll work with the city and the counties on all of those. We'll also be setting up the plans for the future or our vision for the future so that we can send it out to the public and everybody can understand what SFA is and what we're trying to do, including working with the other departments. We're working directly with DOE right now talk about the future CIP needs, the future needs of schools in the communities that we serve, to ensure that we're, we're both aligned on, on how we approach these things. So it's a lot of fun considering what's possible, but also making sure we set up the base now for success for everybody. The governor did talk about you know broadband and, and the direction that we need to go in. So how are we incorporating you know some of that into these new schools that we might be building? It's working on a current project for more broadband in his role in the DOT as well. But let me just say, historically, Catherine, we've been on the broadband track 
looking at this whole issue, and we I don't want to just be Oahu-centric, because a lot of the ideas on Oahu will not work on the neighbor islands. They have different needs. I'll just give you one example. Years ago, we visited Na'alehu, right? A hundred-year-old school. You know their needs? Broadband in the community. Because a hundred yards off of the campus, there was no broadband. There's no ATM in that neighborhood at that time. Whereas the school does have broadband. Under the SFA, could we lease a pad for a bank to install an ATM in that neighborhood? Could we authorize a neighborhood group to build an internet cafe using broadband available to the school? This opens up more community, becomes a community center, but gives them needed facilities. People in that neighborhood, when they have to take their kid to a doctor or a dentist, they have to take off from work. So it's, it's a dual-edged sword. If we had facilities at the campus where doctors could come there on a rotating basis, it saves the community wages, et cetera. You see, there are, there's so many things when you start looking at the issues facing different communities, how this bill could help. It's not just all broadband into a Oahu structure. And Ed, you know, I think the last time I talked to you, we were talking about driverless cars and you were putting yep. in uh, the technology across the state on different islands to make that happen. Absolutely. And it's continuing. Technology is the future, and we need it sooner rather than later. I think everybody sees during this period how important broadband is. It's been something we talked about for the last 10 years or so, but still really haven't been able to make it go forward very quickly. What Alan spoke to is a lack of resources. So for us from the DOT perspective, we have the resources. We have the implementation know-how, and we're going to move it forward. We've already worked with Federal Highways to ensure that they're going to support us in increasing this broadband capability and Wi-Fi um, capability throughout the state. The whole intent is for us to cover our system, our, our roadways, our, our highways, our, our local roads, to make sure that everything is connected on the uh, highway system. So we can control any intersection we need. We can put cameras on any portion of the route we need. We can put data collection devices throughout, and we're ready for connected autonomous vehicles as we come through. So that gives us the most efficient system. When we set up this broadband wireless mesh, there's going to be bleed outs into the community. Mm -hmm. We're going to push that out. We're going to put more equipment out into the community to ensure that we cover everything with a free statewide managed Wi-Fi. So, Alan, from you, where you sit, that access is tied to this then? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a facilitator. When you start getting into each community, you'll find different needs can be addressed given the abilities of the SFA. But you have to have those discussions. You have to engage with the community. As far as then the bills that are up this session... Yep, the bills reestablish what SFA does, what its roles and responsibilities will be, and the rules by which it would it would follow in order to get those things done. We really appreciate the adjustments and amendments that the legislature is putting in and the support for the, the authority that they're putting in. Let me just say, you know, when we became a state, that's when they transferred all the schools to the state entity, right, before the counties built them and, you know, it was county rule. They just forgot to transfer land ownership, but the counties get no benefit of the lands that are under the schools right now. There's no real estate tax base, et cetera. What this might offer uh, is independent of who owns it, if some of the uh, uses become productive, the counties then get a real estate tax base. So even if you had a senior living home, for example, sitting on some excess land that used to uh, be an open field next to a school, that becomes real estate tax base. So, it, you know, there's, there's synergies here for both the counties and the state, but for us to move kind of in the same direction. But there's benefits to the counties as well. Okay, so uh, you're basically asking folks to uh, approach this idea with an open mind and see what's possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We're really excited about it, all the opportunities that we, we have in front of us to improve the educational experiences of our kids, make things easier for our teachers, and potentially bring in um, additional funding to hopefully pay our teachers what they're worth. I want people to really identify with their neighborhood schools like I did. I mean, we've got to rebuild that connection. And each school needs to reflect the community. So that's what our hope is as we move forward. That was former Hawaiian Electric CEO Alan Oshima and DOT's Highways Director Ed Sniffen talking about the state's new school facilities agency as part of the 2.0 recovery plan.
The House bill on the school agency gets its first hearing this session later today. The Senate bill has yet to be scheduled. The past year has presented many challenges for everyone and highlighted how important both physical and mental health is for each of us. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert psychologist about some of the tips to keep mentally strong and physically well throughout the year. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Today, we consider a musical career that began at a Boy Scout ho'olalea in the late 1940s. A young clarinetist started fooling around with the melody of a song called Coming In on a Wing and a Prayer. He was improvising, and that's the basis of jazz playing. His youthful curiosity set a course for the rest of his life. In the post-war years, he grew into an accomplished clarinetist and saxophonist. He was among the 1948 graduating class of McKinley High School, and he spent a summer at Interlochen Music Camp, and then he was on his way. A chance meeting with jazz great Charlie Parker in New York that summer gave this young horn player all the inspiration he needed. Following a stint in the armed forces and a couple of seasons with the Royal Hawaiian Band, he moved to Los Angeles. By this time, he joined the ranks of the Stan Kenton Orchestra and had ascended to the top of the jazz world. This morning, we are looking for his name. Think you know? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag. The townspeople, you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayreet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Hale o Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nayreethawaii.com. Malasadas, the zipper ride, the white elephant sail. Those are just some of the mainstays at the annual Punahou Carnival. It was to take place this weekend. The event raises money for scholarships, and it usually draws thousands of people from across Oahu. But due to the pandemic, organizers instead focused on school ohana and virtual events. The art gallery and silent auction moved online and closed over the weekend. It also had a 19-day giving mission that ended over the weekend. It raised more than $250,000 for scholarships. Punahou Juniors' Alyssa Alvarez and Kiara Reeves spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about planning the big event during the COVID crisis. This is Alyssa, and I have been going to Punahou for three years now. I entered in freshman year. Though I may not have as long of an experience as some of my other classmates, Punahou Punahou Carnival has been a really meaningful event for me. I met a lot of friends. I had some really good moments. Some that come to mind is right right on the Friday that Carnival launches, once we get out of class, um, running down to the lower field to buy tickets and stand in line for rides like the Zipper were always really fun for me. I had a lot of conversations with some of my friends that I still remember to this day. And of course, you can't forget how good some of the food is. My personal favorite are the Terry Burgers. 
I'm Kiara, and this is my 12th year at Punahou. I came in kindergarten, and I just think I think Punahou Carnival is essential in the Hawaii community, and I think it gives the Punahou community sort of a new facet to reconnect with the school, and I think that's really important. And so many of my favorite memories um, from these many years at Punahou have been from Punahou Carnival and getting to see people that I wouldn't normally see on campus or reconnecting with um, alumni and things like that. So I think it's really special for the Hawaii community in general as well. Can you explain to our listeners what the, the planning entails uh, from the student body? Uh, your uh, What are your role in uh, your class, uh, the junior class this year? And I, I guess what is it traditionally uh, leading up to the carnival? Um, so this is Kiara. And traditionally, the junior students um, plan basically the entire carnival. We have two carnival co-chairs. Um, and then several people that are heads of the divisions of each of the food divisions, so that sort of specialties, white elephant food, and so on. Um, and Alyssa and I are the publicity booth chairs, so we um, help sort of publicize Carnival and tell people what's going on. I mean, years passed, and uh, you guys uh, talked about it, you know, got to meet people in person and go to all the rides and those kind of things. And it looks a lot different. So maybe uh, can you talk about uh, what's it look like today? And I mean, how far in advance uh, has this been in planning? Right. So, again, this is Alyssa. And, of course, with these unprecedented times, we had to be very, really flexible when planning out Carnival. Specifically, we wanted to make sure that safety was our first priority. Thus, we, we couldn't do many public events. However, we are holding a lot of things for the Punahou community themselves. This includes a drive-in movie and also some uh, scavenger hunts for the junior school. And for the academy, we have a Among Us game online over the weekend, which will be really fun. With the um, challenges brought on by COVID, how has it been trying to face this challenge and you know turning it virtual? Because last year it was still held in person, um, there were still rides and, you know, very open to the public, but this year uh, pivoting to, to um, you know, to keep everyone safe. How does it feel to be in this moment? Yeah, I think, I mean, Carnival is sort of the big thing that happens junior year, and so I think we were all looking forward to planning our Carnival since we first heard that the juniors got to do that, and so I think it was it was really hard to sort of take that idea of what Punho Carnival usually is and try and flip it on its head and figure out how we can change it and how we can um, sort of reinvent it so that, it, one, of course, primarily that it's safe, and two, that we still feel like we got to plan our own carnival. Um, so I think we've really had to think creatively and strategize about how we can take our favorite parts of carnival and make sure that they're included, but in a safe way our listeners will probably want to know how they can get uh, their hands on malasadas. Can you tell me about the the food this year? How is that um, being rolled out? Sadly, they're no longer available. However, the Punahou community was able to online order some of the favorite foods, such as the noodles, carry burgers, and malasadas, and there will be a drive-in pickup. And um, the week leading up to Carnival, we have been having... Um, carnival-themed foods such as moon noodles or cosmic chili for all of the students, which has been really delicious. What do you think is the biggest thing that you've learned from this experience? I think as a class, we've learned that we, we're very good at thinking creatively and we're very good at sort of coming up with new ways to do things. And I think that has sort of been a strength in everyone all over the world with COVID. And so I think that's a skill that we've all developed really well. As the weekend approaches, what are you looking forward to doing this weekend? Uh, what, are, what are your top uh, top priorities or highlights? Over um, 3.30 to 5, or sorry, 3.30 to 6.30, I will be volunteering at a Friday drive-in movie where I will be helping pass out food to all of these Punahou families while they watch the variety show at and Wally, which will be really fun. 
Um, yeah, and this is Kiara, and I'm very excited to watch the Senior Variety Show, and I know that's something that the senior class takes a lot of pride in, um, and I'm, so I'm excited to see what their work has come to. You've been listening to Punahou School Juniors, Alyssa Alvarez and Kiara Reeves. Uh, they spoke with the Conversations Jason Ubai uh, last week about the Punahou Carnival. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at efforts to get stranded Pacific Islanders back home. The first flight uh, back to Samoa took place, but reporter Anita Hofschneider also takes a look at what's happening with Micronesians. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, so people may not know how long folks have been waiting to go back home to their home island. Yes, so, you know, what happened is that when the pandemic hit last year, very suddenly, many Pacific Islanders, Pacific Island countries shut their borders. And the idea was that they were really afraid about the virus spreading there. And many of them don't have a lot of great um, infrastructure in terms of hospitals or even um, hospital staff. Um, they might not have like the isolation rooms that, that we have access to here in Hawaii or uh, the ventilators. And so um, these countries shut their borders really quickly in, in March. And um, many of them still haven't opened them up. And so the the real concern here is, uh, you know, what happens to the citizens that are trapped abroad? Um, because as we know, many Pacific Islanders, you know, come to Hawaii and, and the rest of the U.S. to go to school, um, for, for work, um, and oftentimes they're seeking medical care. And so um, a lot of them weren't able to go home before the borders shut. And it's crazy because I know lots of folks were hoping that this would be a short shutdown but it's been almost a year. Exactly. You know, and when I talked to people, a lot of them said that they were relieved at first when the their home islands, you know, shut their borders because they were concerned about um, the virus getting there. And a lot of them rely on tourism, just like Hawaii. And so they're fear about the virus being spread that way. But as, as time has gone on and the months lengthened, it's really been uh, really difficult for a lot of people, like a real financial and emotional burden for people to have not be able to go home and have no um, clarity on, on when that might happen. And so one good thing is that um, some places have been um, helping their people go home with what, what they're calling repatriation flights. Um, so as we mentioned, American Samoa's flight um, just left uh, the other week, and um, the Republic of the Marshall Islands is in the midst of its uh, third group quarantining in um, Waikiki, on their way home uh, back to the Marshall Islands. Do we know how many citizens are, you know, stuck outside the borders? So it varies um, depending on the place, but um, you know, one of the countries I wrote about was the Federated States of Micronesia, and they estimate about 900 people are stuck outside their borders, with about a third of those on Guam. Many of those are medical referral patients who are there for cancer treatment, um, and they don't know exactly how many are stuck in Hawaii. But I talked to um, one family where they've been trying to get the, the body of their mother home because they want to conduct the traditional um, indigenous burial services. And she was the leader of their clan in Ponte, and they, they want to be able to pay her this respect. And she died on April 1st of last year, um, from, not from COVID, um, from another illness. And so, but they haven't been able to get her back because they, they aren't able to accompany her um, into into the nation, and so it's it's really just been difficult for them to be in this sort of emotional limbo of not really being able to say goodbye to her. Yeah, culturally that's so important, and yet you know if you can't be home, uh, you know where you know you need to to be in order to do these things. Yeah, it does make it tough. It's also difficult financially. I know one of the people I interviewed this past week is a Marshallese councilman. And he was really happy about being in this third flight, you know, quarantining on the way back. And it's a, it's a lot. They, I mean, they have to get tested multiple times. They have to quarantine both in Honolulu as well as back in the Marshall Islands. Um, but for him, it's worth it because 
he got stuck on Maui when he was visiting his daughter um, in March, and then she lost her job at Hawaiian Airlines, and the f- whole family just really struggled to, to find work, to struggle to afford food, and it was a really humbling, difficult experience, and so he was saying just how grateful he is that he's finally on his way home. Yeah, uh, I- I'm sure folks are just eager to return, but, you know, like you said, it varies from place to place, and, uh, you know, I think some uh, places uh, do want a certain number of their citizens to be vaccinated before they'll open up their doors. Yes, yeah, so that's the Federated States of Micronesia. The president just announced that um, they won't be opening up their borders until 70% of the country is vaccinated. And that's really um, discouraging to the people who are trapped out by the country and want to go home because they don't know when that's going to happen. Um, they estimate that means that 45,000 people need to be vaccinated. And so far, only about 6,000 have been vaccinated. And so it really just continues to show um, just how uncertain and precarious their position is. Yeah, because there's so much uncertainty. No one knows, you know, when that'll happen and when they can return home. But thanks so much. Interesting, interesting story. Good snapshot. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanities Restore, a home improvement store and donation center, open Tuesday through Saturday from 9.30 to 4. HonoluluHabitat.org. Coming Saturday, February 20th, it's an evening of piano jazz in our next virtual Atherton Studio performance. Maggie Heron plays songs from her latest album, Your Refrain, featuring originals co-written with her late daughter, plus classics from the Great American Songbook. It's an online show, so join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to talk about the latest astronomy news, a possible uh, resurrection of the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny, very troubled planet, and as usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and wouldn't you know, we've got him on the line right now. Hey Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey Dave, good to be back. So this week's stargazers, look out for Mars in the southern sky after sunset. It will be visible till around midnight. The moon this week will be passing through its new moon phase, and so sky brightness will be perfect for spotting those faint meteors and other objects in the night sky. And I understand you've got us set for a trip to Puerto Rico for the latest astronomy news this week, yeah? Yeah, and as you remember, in December, we lost the Great Arecibo Radio Telescope. The damage done to this iconic dish was catastrophic when the cables suspending the science platform above the dish snapped sending the platform plummeting into the dish and ending a career spanning over 60 years. It appeared that Arecibo was going to be consigned to history. Or was it? I guess you know something's going on. Perhaps they've come up with some new cables or whatever to fix that thing. (laughs) Well, this week an email was circulated within the astronomical community that described a project to resurrect Arecibo. The initiative is detailed in a white paper authored by the Arecibo staff and the broader astronomical community. Well, we're in suspense now, Chris. Tell us about the paper. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it contains a proposal, a simple one, to construct a next-generation Arecibo telescope, to build a new, unparalleled instrument that will push forward the boundaries of astronomy and planetary science for decades. Sounds ambitious. Do you think it'll really happen? And will they build it in that same sort of jungly place that the uh, last one was in? That's the intention. And the paper will be presented to the National Science Foundation and shared with the stakeholders from both private and public sectors this week. 
The concept is not intended to be final, but it will lay the groundwork for engineering studies at the site. And what's the plan on uh, moving forward with that? Well, signatures are being collected and will be submitted along with the paper this week. And afterwards, we can expect a period of review and a decision probably by the end of the year. You think it'll pass? Well, given the demonstrated potential of the site and the achievements of the previous telescope, I think the chances are pretty high that we will see an Arecibo 2.0. And we'll see what happens and appreciate the update from you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Backyard Quiz, we remember a Halo boy raised in Honolulu who became a recognizable name in the world of jazz. His world of music started at age 11 when he played the clarinet, but he would later switch to the saxophone. He was a busy teenager. He was the first recipient of a musical scholarship at Punahou School of Music, funded by the Filipino Art Lovers Club. By age 16, he had already been playing professionally for two years. Best known for his alto sax and clarinet work with the Stan Kenton Orchestra, he also played alongside jazz stars like Terry Gibbs, Dizzy Gillespie, and Oliver Nelson. Throughout the 60s, studio work was plentiful for skilled musicians in Los Angeles, and our mystery player was kept busy with many TV soundtracks. He came home to the islands in 1969 to rejoin the Royal Hawaiian Band, remaining with it until 1985. In 2012, the University of Hawaii Press published his autobiography, If It Swings, It's Music, the autobiography of Hawaii's Gay Balthazar Jr. That was the answer we were looking for, and we got a ton of calls, but congrats to Mike May and Nick from Hawaii Kai. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Los Angeles Times photographer Kent Nishimura plans to be on the Hill for tomorrow's impeachment trial. He's a graduate of the University of Hawaii at Manoa and Roosevelt High School and has been in Washington, D.C. to cover President Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. We talked to him about what it was like during the siege on the Capitol on January 6th. He just moved from the West Coast for the temporary assignment. I moved at the end of uh, 2020 to D.C. in preparation um, for, you know, the incoming administration. I was up on the hill covering, like, the opening, you know, the gaveling in of sort of the 117th Congress, photographing some of the, the new incoming congressional members from the California congressional delegation. And, and you know, just kind of, kind of getting settled in and really spending time on the hill to, you know, kind of get myself acquainted with everybody there. And, you know, honestly, I, I mean, I had heard and seen some, like, chatter online about, like, some of the rhetoric that was being spewed about and talking about, like, um, the march and the rally that uh, President Trump was holding. And, I, you know, honestly, I at a, at a certain level, I, intellectually, I understood what was happening, but I just never expected it to kind of turn into what it was. My day started out dropping off some gear on the hill in the U.S. Capitol building because I was going to be there for the certification vote. After my editors and I had talked about the rally and the march that was going to potentially be happening, I figured I should go and check it out. So I walked from the Capitol building to the ellipse, you know, the Washington Monument and the ellipse in front of the White House. And I was honestly shocked to see such a large amount of people. And I, I'm not even sure off the top of my head how many people that were there, but the 
I mean, the the space in front of between the monument and the ellipse and the White House was filled, packed with people. And it, it was it was just kind of jarring to see that as I had kind of made my way around the Smithsonian and I came up into view of the, the Washington Monument. And it was just so jarring because, you know, COVID is still happening. I had never expected to see such a large group of people gathering, especially, you know, with everything that's happened in the last year as far as COVID regulations and and, and, and whatnot. And so it was really jarring and strange to see such a large group of people there. So I photographed the crowd that, that had assembled for the rally. And, and as the president had said that we're going to march to the, the Capitol building, I, I actually started making my way back towards the Capitol just because the certification vote was going to be start be starting. And I wanted to be back there to photograph some of it. As I walked back to the, the the Capitol building, I noticed that there was one of everybody had started marching from the, the Washington Monument up the National Mall towards the Capitol, and I had seen some people starting to gather on the West Front, which is where the inauguration stage was being built and set up. And you know, of course, in a few weeks, Joe Biden would be sworn in as the 46th president, and there was people gathering in front of a line of, of the Capitol Police. I was already wearing uh, some body armor, which was concealed underneath a, a winter coat. And I donned my helmet, my gas mask, and some uh, ballistic eye protection and kind of waded into the uh, crowd, as it were. And did you get any flack from anyone because you're media? You know, I, I was lucky. There wasn't a lot of attention drawn to me for some reason or another. I, I try to dress pretty nondescript and be as minimal and obtr- less obtrusive as possible when I'm in a crowd like that. Um, just I never want to draw attention to myself. One, because you know you can potentially become the story, and journalists never want that. But, I, I mean, there was only one incident where, where a man had uh, struck me in the back of the head with his flagpole and cursed me out and said I was fake news, which I, I immediately tried to defuse the situation and, and get away from him as quick as possible. One, because I was headed toward the east front of the building, and two, I just didn't want to have to deal with that. Luckily, I was wearing my helmet at the time, and all he did was he just kind of struck the helmet, and I felt like the bump, but didn't really think anything of it. At the height of this, did you feel scared for your safety? You know, I, I honestly, there was one, there was so much adrenaline pumping through my system. And because I was so focused on making pictures, I never really, really had time to be afraid for my own safety. I, You get kind of tunnel vision when you're in situations like that, where you're just focused on doing good work as well as, and this is something that I personally do, is I'm, I'm constantly making threat assessments, observing people that I'm photographing, people in the crowd, people... All, all around me and making sure that there's, I at least have one or two exit points that I can, you know, quickly escape from that situation in case things go sideways. Smart. You so, have uh, you have situational awareness. Yeah. And, and, and that's something that I picked up, especially um, over the summer, but also covering wildfires. And I mean, like this past year was my third season of covering wildfires in California. And you always have to be aware of that because the fire can jump so quickly and surround you that you have to just constantly be making threat assessments so that you can stay safe. You have some fascinating pictures on your Instagram. I know one that I saw where uh, someone was getting sprayed with pepper spray. Correct. He, uh, he was uh, getting sprayed pretty heavily. I also got sprayed as well. <laughs> Well, describe that photo. So there's a gentleman wearing goggles, and I believe he's wearing a hat, and he was um, yelling at the Capitol Police officers. I honestly don't recall exactly what he was. He was definitely gesturing and gesticulating and, and making aggressive movements toward them. And an officer came up from behind the first row of officers and discharged his the weapon that, you know, that discharged the, the, the OC spray is what I think they, was what I've heard the, the officers refer to it as. It's pepper spray, but it's also like a more concentrated military-grade version of it that, that definitely, it sucks to get sprayed by it, for sure. Yeah, it burns, uh, The gentleman sure. got sprayed, and he basically just kind of kept going. I, I have to believe that he was, like, very much, like, pumped full of adrenaline, was continuing going, and, like, he, after the cop uh, sprayed him, he, like, gestured to him and, like, kind of a come-at-me uh, gesture and said, come on, bro, keep it going. Bring it on. And that was so bizarre. And and one thing that I, I do want to mention is is that it, it was really interesting hearing a lot of them talking and how 
there would be a, a, a front line is what they were describing it as, pushing up against the, the Capitol Police, and they would either get hit with a flashbang or tear gas or pepper spray. They would then rotate out, and more people would come in, and there would be men yelling, shouting, more to the front, more to the front, more to the front line. And it just it was it was so bizarre in the sense of, of the language that they were using. It was, it was very militaristic. It was like very much the language of war, and they were treating it as such, which to me was was very bizarre. Well, I'm getting chicken skin just thinking about it. How far did you get into the Capitol? So at the at the height of the riot, I was on the West Front where the inauguration stage is. And, and, and I've gotten a report from a colleague that there were another, another group or another part of the group had assembled on the East Front steps, like literally made it through the perimeter of the Capitol grounds and was up against the Capitol building. I decided to actually wrap around the building and go there. And like I was saying earlier, I had body armor on, and, and I have a credential that allows me to be in the Capitol building. So that was actually tucked into my body armor for most of the day. And as I got to the east front step, I made sure that it was still kind of tucked away, and I walked all the way up to the to the steps. And right at that moment, a couple of the Capitol police officers had been sprayed with something that I assume was either OC spray or bear spray or bear mace, I should say. And they were they got pulled out and the mo- the mob proceeded to swing open the doors and just start flooding into the building. There was a moment where I got squinched between a bunch of people who were clamoring to get in and I felt my legs, my feet lift off off the ground and be- get lifted into into the entryway. And as people flooded in, I just continued to take pictures and they flooded into the rotunda. And as I walked in, you know, just one kind of in shock that this was actually happening, that they had breached the doors to the to the east front. And I pulled my credential out to make it visible in case any law enforcement officers happened to see me and, you know, which would indicate, hey, he's allowed to be in here on in this facility. And I walked into the rotunda, um, you know, which is, you know, where the the, the, basically the center of, of the, the Capitol building. And it was such a weird, there was such a weird, like, change of mood. People were flooding in, they were shouting and and really, you know, like, at, like saying very amped up rhetoric. And it all of a sudden, the mood had, would change where they all pulled out their camera phones and started taking selfies of themselves in the rotunda. And it was just so bizarre how, like, this, this dichotomy of, like, going from, you know, this raucous mob to almost like tourists in a in a in a place where you would take a selfie it it was just so so surreal to see to see that lots of pictures were taken that day do journalists covering an event like this do they share those photos with law enforcement as the fbi and the feds try and figure out what happened and who did what that day has there been any discussions about sharing those um, photos? I know discussions of a similar nature had happened in Seattle, I believe, where the Seattle PD were try- was trying to get access to like the photo archive of unpublished photos from the Seattle Times during their coverage of, of some of the, uh, the protests that were happening during the summer. I honestly don't know as far as what, what our paper has, has decided. I'm, I'm, I'm sure... Um, our lawyer has like had some thoughts on that, but I, I I personally don't don't have any of the photos that you took that day. Do you have any that capsulize your feeling? I know so many. I have lots of friends who are photographers, so I know they take a lot, yeah. and only a few yeah. get published, right? But- yeah, that's correct. Uh, I mean, and part of it too is, is for the LA Times, we syndicate our work through Getty Images, so you know a lot of what I what I photograph appears is syndicated on there for licensing you know, as on Getty's Newswire. And some of the photos did make it into the paper. Some of, A lot of it was used online, but a lot of it is also it was just syndicated through Getty. Mm. I mean, there's definitely one photo that really, really does stick out for me. It, it was it was made after the actual siege had happened. You know, I, I, had, I had been in the rotunda and, and the Capitol building, made my way to, like, the House and the Senate chambers, and then was eventually evacuated with the rest of the staff on the Hill as the Capitol Hill police and, you know, other law enforcement cleared out the entire building. And I was, you know, evacuated to a secure location where I was then holding with other photographers and members of Congress while we waited for what was next and eventually made it, made our way back to the Capitol building to, you know, continue with the certification vote. So after returning to the, the building and kind of seeing 
the aftermath. There was a photograph that I made looking out the the east door, which you know I had walked in through hours before with hundreds of other people, and the bulletproof glass uh, pane uh, near, that's like near, near, I guess regular eye level, was shattered from impacts. You know, people hitting it with hammers or something. I'm not sure what exactly they had in their hands, but blunt objects probably. And so there was, you know, like a spider web in the in this you know really thick ballistic glass and the door had residue on it from a pepper spray projectiles that were that were used by the officers to fire at the uh, at the at the mob and reflected in the window or in that in that glass plane was the american flag and so it was really like this kind of poignant moment for me that just everything kind of came together in one photo of of like this fractured democracy and the the residue and remnants and lasting marks of despite it being horrific and you know tremendously historic event i i believe the last time the capital was breached in that manner was in 1814 and so it, it was it's been a very long time since that happened and so it just everything kind of for me crystallized into that into that photograph in that in that one moment and and like it really like kind of evoked the mood for for what everybody was feeling that night. That was Kent Nishimura, Los Angeles Times photographer. Uh, He will be on the Hill tomorrow to cover the trial of President uh, Donald Trump. We will share links to his work on our page at hawaiipublicradio.org. that is it for today and at this moment i'm not sure how the impeachment trial will affect our show tomorrow but we're going to be talking about cancer screenings if we're still around what are your thoughts about this second impeachment trial of our president caller talk back line 808-792-8217 and remember all of our shows are archived find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org i'm Catherine cruz we will be back tomorrow hopefully with more of the conversation